G'day, everyone. Hey, it's gone. Good to see you. The few of us that are here, that's good. <laughs> hey, um, I don't know if you've been journeying with us over the last month, but we've had this series at night around um, Jesus, miracles, and you. And uh, I'm going to sort of land that tonight and, and wrap it up a little bit by asking a couple of questions, um, mainly trying to answer what do miracles tell us about God? So I, I like to think anything we read in the Bible, if we read the story of um, David and Goliath, what does that tell us about God? If we read the story of Noah and the ark, what does that tell us about God? Um, and so looking at the, the miracles that we see, particularly in the Gospels, what does that teach us about God? Um, so the word miracle, pretty, um, pretty interesting word actually. It's actually from the Latin, uh, miraculum, which means, best translation is an object of wonder. Okay, it makes you wonder, makes you think, what, what's going on here? What, what, what's, what's happening? Um, and with this idea, that's where it actually came from, but it's actually changed, I think, in our Understanding It's something more like this, that it's a supernatural contradiction or violation of the laws of nature. So we think of something like Jesus walking on the water and we go, hang on, science tells us that can't happen. So if it did happen, a miracle is a contradiction or a violation of the laws we understand or it didn't happen. And some people land in that camp, it just didn't happen, their stories, they're made up. Other people go, no, no, it's a miracle, it actually did happen, but we can't explain how it happened. And then there's people sort of in between that. So what this actually does, I think, this meaning that, that our, our current context use, our current culture, it sort of gives this idea that there's two worlds. There's the physical, measurable world, and there's this spiritual unseen world and if these two worlds where one's observable and one's hidden if they sort of override one another we have what's called a miracle you know when something like that steps into the physical world we can't explain it through science or any other way that must be a miracle but then we know that there are many atheists there are many um, humanists there are many um, philosophical people who would just say that there is no spiritual dimension anyway there is no spiritual dimension. The physical world is all there actually is. And one of the guys who's um, pretty famous for having that opinion is a guy called Sam Harris. You might have come across him before. Uh, Sam Harris, um, I don't know if he would call himself an atheist. He probably would. But what he's passionate about is speaking against religion, any type of religion. He thinks religion is just no good for humanity. And I just want to hear a couple of things of what he consider, has said. Consider Christianity. The entire doctrine is predicated on the idea that the, the gospel account of the miracles of Jesus is true. This is, this is why people believe Jesus was the Son of God, divine, etc. Okay, so he sets up the idea that the miracles recorded in the gospels is what a lot of the Christian faith is actually based on. And he would go on to say, well, there's no proof that any of those things happened. We have no proof today that any of those things can happen. So those things, therefore, did not happen. Towards the end of this clip, he goes on to comment that, and I can't believe 
nearly half the world's population base their life on this sort of rubbish. That, that's sort of how he ends that clip. Um, but there's another part that he says, but I just want to... So this idea of two worlds, the, the dualistic approach, we have the physical world, the spiritual world, and unless they collide, we don't have miracles happening. Um, he, he talks about that a little bit more, so let's just continue. A bit worse than that. The truth is, even if we had multiple contemporaneous eyewitness accounts of the miracles of Jesus, this still would not provide sufficient basis to believe that these events actually occurred. Well, why not? Well, the problem is that first-hand reports of miracles are quite common, even in the 21st century. Um, I have met literally, literally hundreds at this point of Western-educated men and women who think that their favorite Hindu or Buddhist guru has magic powers. It, all, the powers ascribed to these gurus are every bit as outlandish as those ascribed to Jesus. Uh, now I, re, I actually remain open to evidence of such powers, but the, the, the fact is that people who tell these stories desperately want to believe them. All, to my knowledge, lack the kind of corroborating evidence we should require before believing that nature's laws have been abrogated in this way. So you can see he's coming from this scientific point of view that unless you can prove something absolutely, there's, then you're a fool in believing it. Um, and so I just wanted to show that little bit because he paints this picture as, as it goes through of this dualistic way of thinking. Physical world, spiritual world. He would say the spiritual world does not exist. So anyone who says miracles happen are dabbling in this spiritual world, but you can't prove any of that, so you're a bit of a fool, um, is basically his premise. Now, what we need to understand is the people who wrote the Gospels uh, did not think in that way. That, did, that was not even in their thinking. These were Jewish people who wrote the Gospels. And there's no dualistic world, physical and spiritual. That was not in their understanding. That was not in their thinking. Their understanding was there is one world and God is the creator and sustainer of that world. And because he is the creator and sustainer, whatever happens in the world, whether we can explain it or not, is God's action in his creation. If it's his world, he can do whatever he wants in his world because he has created it, he has set it up, he has designed it, he sustains it, he's the one who empowers it to happen. So the people who wrote about the miracles and the people who were witnessing it had this idea that everything is God's and God is the powerful or all-powerful creator, so therefore he can do whatever he wants to do. Now, Sam Harris would argue that we cannot trust or believe miracles, and, and he said this at the end of that, because we lack the cor corroborating evidence that we should require before believing nature's laws have been abrogated in any way. We should have solid evidence before we would believe that something like somebody walking on water could actually happen because we know people cannot walk on water. And so that, that's, his, that's his premise. So... I want to look at a couple of things. What did Jesus do? Jesus is God, God in the flesh. So what did Jesus do in his own creation? If he is the creator and sustainer of everything, isn't it possible that he could do whatever he wanted to do within his own creation? Now, when we look at the miracles, they're generally 
split into this sort of breakdown. Generally, four types of miracles we see in the Gospels. We see healings, we see exorcisms, so the casting out of evil spirit. Um, Nature miracles, that's things like walking on water, um, feeding 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread. Uh, And resurrections, four resurrections recorded in the Gospels, including the one of Jesus. So these are unique individual miracles. So they're repeated across a number of the Gospels, but unique individual miracles. Now, if these things are going on, then with that thought that the whole world is God's and God is the creator and sustainer and can do whatever he wants to do and Jesus is God in the flesh, then we've got this, got this set up here where Jesus can do whatever he wants to do in this space. But why did he do these things? What do these miracles tell us about God? Interesting to note that in that clip we just saw of Sam Harris, he referred to the, um, the Buddhist and the Hindu monks or gurus that he mentioned and he talked about them having power. And um, the power experienced in the creation, in the created order and then Jesus stepping in with power to alter some of his creation at times is an interesting thing to think of. Now, we said the miracles was a word from the Latin language and we know the Bible was not written in Latin. So what words were actually used in Scripture? So the first one we get in Greek is dunamis, which means strength or authority. So that word is translated into miracle in English. And when we hear miracle, we think, oh, something supernatural has happened that can't be explained physically. But the meaning behind the word is actually strength or authority, power power the other word that's used and this one's mostly used in john's gospel is samia or or signs they're signs these miracles point to something they they give direction towards something and so that's interesting just to keep note of as we as we go through these so keeping these two words in mind that the word used originally in these gospels uh gospel accounts of the miracles happening The words used talk to strength, authority and power or signs. Now, N.T. Wright, great New Testament scholar, listen to what he says about this. These words, so that's the two Greek words we just looked at, do not carry, as the English word miracle is sometimes done, overtones of invasion from another world. They indicate that something has happened within what we would call the natural world, which seems to provide evidence for the active presence of a power not invading the created order as an alien force, but rather enabling it to be more truly itself. Enabling the creation to be more truly itself. Think about the types of miracles. We had healings. We had exorcisms, so the, the removal of evil. We had some things to do with nature, the created order. And we had resurrections, overcoming death. Now, when we read the gospel accounts, or sorry, the biblical account, we start at the beginning in Genesis where when God created the world, none of those things were part of the creative order. There was no sickness, so we didn't need healing. There was no evil, so we didn't need any exorcisms. We didn't need to manipulate the created order because it was good and perfect, and there was no death. When we get to the end of Scripture and we look at Revelation, where we're heading, 
same picture. So if Jesus is coming on the scene 2,000 years ago in an actual time in history and he's displaying these signs, these manifestations of power, what are they pointing at? Around this time, remember Jesus is a Jew, Jewish audience. So they understood that they were living in an age of curse. And they were cursed because they had not fulfilled the covenant promises they made with God through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Okay, They had not fulfilled those. And when we read a passage like Deuteronomy 28 encourage you to have a look at that put that one down Deuteronomy 28 there's a whole list of where God says if you do not worship me if you do not have me as as the creator and sustainer and God and Lord if you choose not to do that this is the consequence and he lists all these things they're things like there'll be fevers and skin diseases and blindness and insanity and a heap of other physical things that are not pleasant and death So here's the result of you choosing to live apart from God. So the Jewish people, because of their history, and we read through the whole Old Testament where they just got it wrong time after time after time after time, and all this crap happened to them, right? So they were exiled by by the Babylonians. Um, They were taken over by the Persians. They were taken over by the Greeks. They were taken over by the Romans. They were having a pretty bad time of it. And in all this, they were pretty much convinced that the blindness and the lame people and the lepers and the insane and the diseased and the possessed is all a sign of the curse back from what was said in Deuteronomy. So let's keep that in mind um, of, of all that that's going on. But Scripture, now when I say Scripture for the Jewish people, that's what we call the Old Testament. Scripture also points towards a glorious renewal of all things and the prophets were the ones who did that the prophets were the ones that God would speak through to say if you turn from the way you're living without me and you come back and live in relationship with me it's going to be different and that's what the prophets were designed to do so let's hear what one of the main prophets Isaiah said here's one thing he says in that day so that's the day when the Messiah, the kingdom of God is going to come around. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. So there's this promise that there's going to be a day when the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, is going to come and bring in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is what we saw right at the beginning of Genesis and what we're aiming for at the end of Revelation. And the Messiah is going to come and do it. So he's pointing towards this in Isaiah. He continues on. He says, um, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. That's a messianic reference. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So we're starting to see there's going to be something tangible that happens. These curses are going to be lifted somehow. There's going to be a fresh anointing and there's going to be healing and health come in when the kingdom of God is brought in. 
He goes on to say, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what we, where we get the word gospel. Proclaiming good news, the gospel. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So let's keep all that in mind, okay? So you're a Jewish person, you're living in the time of Jesus, you understand your scriptural history, you understand all that. And you know that in a book like Deuteronomy, it says, man, all this bad stuff's going to come upon you when you choose to walk separate from God. And they saw it happen through generation after generation. But they also know these promises that when the Messiah finally comes, things are going to start to look different. So they know all that. And then in the middle of knowing all that, Jesus turns up. But before Jesus turned up, a guy called John the Baptist appeared on the scene. And his role was to point people towards Jesus. And John had a group of disciples following him, people who were following him, helping baptise people. And long story short, John got arrested, was thrown in jail. And while he's in jail... He wants to know if this Jesus guy is actually the Messiah. He's starting to hear about him. Jesus is starting to do some things. There's some healings going on. There's some demons getting cast out. And John's in jail and he sends his disciple and he goes, go and ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? So with all this context, listen how Jesus replies to this. So Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples and he went to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, think of the Isaiah passages, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. If he was any clearer, he would have said, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling all the things that scripture has been pointing to. And I can do these things because what Jesus was actually about was not only was he the Messiah, but he was bringing into reality the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as we know from the beginning, was a place where there's no sickness and death and pain and suffering, evil, none of that exists. And we know, well, these guys didn't at this time because Revelation wasn't written at that point, but we know that that's where we're heading to. And so Jesus links this idea that his powers, his miracles actually are revealing that he is the Messiah and that people are called to live in this reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus' main teaching was the kingdom of God is here. And let me show you that the kingdom of God is here. I'm going to heal this guy who can't see. And I'm going to feed the people who are hungry. And I'm going to cast out that evil spirit and restore this person. Because in the kingdom of God... Health and wholeness and peace and love is the reality. That's how it operates. And so we see these two passages. Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, he starts off, just after he's baptised, he says, repent. So change the way you think about things. 
Change the way you think about things because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's now available. And then he spends his three years of public ministry displaying the kingdom of God. And then we see in Acts, after he has been crucified and resurrected, it says he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and he appeared over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so what do these miracles tell us about God? They tell us that the kingdom of God is now a reality that we can live into. So it's a reality that is available now, but it's not in its fulfillment yet. Its fulfillment will come when Jesus returns and all things get sorted. So when we talk about, you know, if someone passes away, they're going to go to heaven, that's not actually biblically accurate. Our future is in a renewed physical world, in physical bodies, resurrected bodies, because death has been defeated, for eternity where there is no longer death or pain or suffering. Because that's the original picture. Physical beings with God available to us in relationship in a physical world. Sin came in, all that went wrong, Jesus is about fixing it up and we end up physical beings in a physical world. This world renewed, restored, evil thrown out, pain and suffering thrown out, death no longer exists and the kingdom of God in its fulfilment. It's a pretty cool picture. So Jesus was actually ushering in a new era, a new time frame, a new period. And it's the period that we're still actually in today. 2,000 years later, we're still in this period where the kingdom of God is a reality for us, but has not yet been fulfilled for us. And that's what Jesus' miracles were actually pointing to. They were pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah, he is God himself, and that through his healing and his proclamation of the good news of the gospel, that poor, the poor were hearing the good news, that evil was being expelled, lives were being restored. It was a preview, it was a taste, it was a, a touching of what our future reality is going to be like. And Jesus' miracles sit in that space really well. So what do they tell us about God? They tell us that he's restoring all things to himself. And what blows me away is that he will use, as we've been looking all year as a church, he will use people like us. He will use his church as part of that restoration in his world. It's a pretty cool thing. Let me pray for us. So Father God, I thank you. I just thank you that you're up to stuff that sometimes we find it really hard to understand and hard to get our head around. But in the middle of it all, there's this real simplicity that Jesus, you are God. You came and you lived and died and rose again. And because of that, you just invite us into this new way of living. What we call the kingdom of God, a life where, where we have direct access to you. A life where you are no longer hidden from us. We are no longer separated, but we are in relationship with you and it's through your spirit in us that, that you move and you act and you shape us and you mould us and you bring us together as the church. And in those spaces, you are becoming known in our world. And so, God, we pray you would have all the glory. 
We pray that as we look to things like the miracles and the accounts in the gospel of your teaching and your action, that we can just learn more about who you are and go deeper in our relationship with you. And I just pray that's a reality for each of us this evening. Amen. I'm going to come to a time of communion and um, I just want to read a passage to you from Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. And this, this will just resonate a little bit with what I've just shared. So just keep in mind this context of, yeah, feel free to hand that out now. Just hold on to those as you get them. Um, just in the context of Jesus being the Messiah, of Jesus being the creator and sustainer of all things, of, of Jesus providing a way for us to have relationship with him. Let me just read this little passage out of Matthew chapter 27. It says, Two rebels were crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He thinks he can save others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's supposed to be the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, they said. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, because he even said he was the son of God. And as this was going on, even the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? when some of those who were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling out to Elijah. And one of them went and got a sponge and filled it with wine and put it on a stick and offered it to him for a drink. Then the others said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. I love that line. That line tells us Jesus did not die from the crucifixion. Jesus, in complete control of his life, gave up his life. And at that very moment, when he gave up his spirit, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the curtain in the temple represented access to God's presence. And because of what Jesus did, we now have direct access to the very person of God. Not only do we have access, but God places himself, his own spirit in us as believers. So we walk around as many temples. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and go through all the rituals and do all the sacrifice and then not even be able to still access where God is because we're not the high priest. We don't have to go through any of that because the curtain was torn. 
and the Spirit of God has been placed in us so that we carry the presence of God with us. And we celebrate that as we have communion. As part of what we celebrate, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the life that comes from that. So can I just encourage you in this moment, as you take these elements, you might want to send up a prayer of thanks. You might want to ask for forgiveness for something. You might just want to praise God in your own space. You might want to just ask God, really, really help me believe this. But I just encourage you in your own space to do what you need to do.